Well, there was more of a reaction to Jerome Powell's Jackson Hole speech on Friday, seeing the US dollar fall and the yield curve steepen a little and equities rising again as well. Quite a reaction from a speech that was basically saying what everyone was expecting. We'll discuss the implications a little more today. Plus, will TikTok have to wind down as China blocks its sale? And what are the implications of Shinzo Abe's resignation last week? And will any renewed confidence in Europe be short-lived as infection numbers continue to rise just as the schools go back? It's Monday, the 31st of August, 2020. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, in case you haven't already heard, quite a big fall in the US dollar on Friday on the DXY, down 0.9%. That helped push the Aussie dollar up 1.5% to 73.7 US cents. That's 2.9% up on the week last week. Uh, the Kiwi dollar also at 1%, 1.5% on Friday. The pound also grew on that falling US dollar. It was at 1.2% and about the same for the Japanese yen. The euro up 0.7%. Uh, US equities rose still higher. The Nasdaq and Dow up 0.6%. The S&P 500 up a little more than that, whilst equities in Europe fell on Friday. The same for the SX200, losing 0.9%. And 10-year Treasury yields lost three basis points, less than one point down for 30 years. Uh, oil down a, a tiny bit, but gold up over 2% for COMEX. So it's quite an end to the week. So let's look a little more closely at that with Ray Atrell, head of FX Strategy. Uh, obviously, a chunk of that was a, a bit of a delayed response, I guess, uh, to Jerome Powell's talk at uh, the virtual Jackson Hole, well, particularly a delayed response in the US dollar, wasn't it? I mean, we didn't see much reaction immediately after the uh, the talk, but then uh, on Friday, it really did start to fall. Uh, equities, obviously, quick to leap in, uh, but now the dollar, the US dollar is at a two-year low, isn't it? Yeah, morning, Phil. I, t- I think that power speech is uh, is the gift that gives on giving, um, and it yeah. will be for a little while, I think. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yes. So, if you think about Thursday's reaction, it was really concentrated on the yeah. bond market, wasn't it? With that significant uh, curve steepening that we saw, with that back up in ten and uh, or yields from ten years to thirty years, um, you know, on the view that uh, you know if this if it was a credible threat or perceived credible threat from the uh, from the Fed to uh, to run the economy hot and secure a period of inflation above 2%, um, then it's right that uh, that we should see curve steepening. But we actually saw relatively modest moves from equities and, uh, and virtually no movement in the dollar. Now, that all turned around on Friday, and it's the dollar in particular that uh, that bore the brunt, I think, of the sort of reflected or reflective thinking on, on Powell. Um, and I would and I would argue, you know, fully justified, because again, if, you know, if the market perceives that the Fed is going to succeed in running in inflation at, uh, you know, somewhere as high as 3%, which I think was mentioned by uh, one of the Fed members on Friday or 25 mm. to 3%, then... Um you know, in, in, in theoretical terms, that uh, well, a it means that real U.S. interest rates would be lower if inflation expectations are higher, which is a theoretical um, argument for a weaker dollar. And it's a sort of a um, don't want to, to bore readers with economics one hundred and one on uh, at six o'clock on a Monday morning, but but purchasing power parity theory tells you that if one country's got higher inflation than another, then its currency should be falling over time. So it was uh, you know it was a a well a well crafted response if you like, from the dollar, but but big moves, obviously. So the, the dollar has been sort of flitting, you know, positive and minus for a little bit, but one, what, one and a half percent moves in the Aussie and the Kiwi with a standout to individual moves on Friday. But all of that implies that people are actually expecting that inflation will, you know, that they are, I mean, the Fed can say what they like, but inflation has not been anywhere near 2%, certainly nowhere near 3% for a long, long time. And then right on cue, we got the core PC deflator uh, on Friday, which came in at 1.3%. So showing just how far they have to go. So... 
even though he's talking about it and the market's reacting, I mean, is it ever going to happen? Well, who knows is the answer. But uh, at the moment, this view that, um, you know, COVID and the economic fallout from it, from all of the various uh, uh, policy measures that have been put in place uh, is perceived, I think quite rightly, as a disinflationary shock. Um, look at the Tokyo inflation numbers that we got on Friday, not something we normally talk about on the morning call, but they have gone into outright deflation uh, as far as the uh, the August numbers that we had on Friday are concerned. As you say, those USPC numbers are going down. Um, you know, no central bank anywhere is, is even close to achieving its inflation target. And they're saying, well, we haven't met it, so why don't we just go for an even higher target? Target and uh, you know how credible is the threat? I do think there's a sense that if any um, economy or any policymakers are capable of generating higher inflation, then ultimately it's going to be the US. And uh, you know if the Fed is going to have no qualms whatsoever about continuing to uh, you know to keep rates at zero for years to come, but also continue to pump up its balance sheet, um, then ultimately that uh, is probably where the best hope of inflation comes right, from. Right. The whole reason they're, they're not wanting to focus quite so much on inflation is because they really want to concentrate on getting jobs back isn't it but where at what point do they turn and say well okay uh you know this uh, if we let unemployment get any lower this will create inflation that's the the narrow but they're saying that they really don't know what that is anymore in effect aren't they they're saying they don't want a specific fixed goal for em- for employment so it's it's all pretty fluid from now on isn't it well it is but um you know we've been debating that as a, as a team at, at nab you know ultimately you know are we going to get inflation if you know our view is we're not going to get inflation until we get higher wages growth. And it's unlikely that we're going to get the higher wages growth consistent with our inflation until we get employment certainly back to the levels that existed well before COVID-19. And in fact, sort of, you know, we're going to need um, full employment or more than full employment as a prerequisite for seeing wages growth yeah. coming up to the sort of levels, as I say, that would be consistent with the inflation target. And, you know, I think we all unfortunately know that um, there are going to be these so-called output gaps and and, uh, and gaps in the labour market relative to full employment for many years to come. And on that basis, it's, um, you know, I, I understand what the Fed is saying, that we, you know, we're not going to, the difference is we're not going to suddenly start hearing alarm bells if we get back to inflation, unemployment, sorry, with a three in front of it, mm. because historically that hasn't, um, or recent years hasn't been associated with inflation because of what's known as the, the Phillips curve or the trade-off between inflation and unemployment yeah. has been virtually non-existent. Well, so I think that's why the Fed is saying mm. just because we think we're at full employment, um, it doesn't necessarily mean um, that means inflation because history tells us, or recent history tells us, not necessarily to expect that. But um, All right. anyway, let's see. But uh, we're talking about things that are many years, many in the years future, away. Many years away. Unfortunately, exactly. Let's look at where we are right now. So I'm wondering, is confidence coming back in Europe? If it is, it's it's happening very slowly, isn't it? We look at the latest numbers on Friday. Economic sentiment up to 87.7 up month by month since April. Uh, industrial sentiment was minus 12.7, which sounds bad, but it was in negative figures long before the virus, similarly with consumer confidence. I'm just wondering that, I mean, that confidence number hasn't, the consumer confidence number hasn't really picked up for a few months now. And even if things did pick up, we're getting this second wave starting, it seems, particularly in places like France, starting to, the infection rates growing you know, you'd have to look and wonder whether this is going to be short-lived, any pickup we're seeing in Europe at the moment. No, absolutely. I mean, obviously, a couple of a week before last, we were all stressing about those uh, flash PMI numbers, weren't we, for France and Germany, etc., turning down. And then a lot of those numbers were sort of contradicted by things like the German IFO survey last week. And now uh, these pickups in confidence, but I suggest these numbers were probably recorded several weeks ago. Um, I'm just seeing the BBC News talking about, um, you know, 
Um, holidaymakers returning from Greece now, having to isolate because of various cases of, uh, of COVID having uh, uh, having been detected on planes, for example. So I wonder, you know, whether this is going to start, um, you know, having a, a negative impact on confidence. So um, yes, I wouldn't read too much into these tentative signs. Maybe that um, you know things have stabilised a little bit, but um, I certainly wouldn't be wanting to draw any strong conclusions from those uh, no. numbers we got on Friday. Well, the, the seven-day moving average for France now is up to 5,000, which is actually higher than it was in the first peak. So uh, not good news. The only good news is the fact that, uh, you know, it's not being translated into fatalities, as we've said. So there's something going on there. So what about the uh, the resignation of Shinzo Abe, the, uh, the Japanese prime minister, on Friday? Can any of the uh, movement in the yen that we saw be accounted for that? And will we... Will we see a new approach there? I mean, is, is Governor Kuroda going to carry on with Arbenomics along with whoever replaces the PM? Uh, is anyone expecting a major shift in policy? I mean, perhaps they need it because it's not been working that well for them, has it? <laughs> well, no, it hasn't. I think in the short term, the answer is almost certainly no. But we did see quite a significant knee-jerk reaction in terms of an equity market sell-off. Uh, and the yen um, you know, did spurt higher for a while. But uh, if you look at the, the numbers overall, they've been sort of you know masked, I think, by the overall weakness of the US dollar. Um, but inevitably now there is, is, is going to be speculation that uh, whoever succeeds Abe, um, you know, might sound the death knell for so-called Arbonomics, um, you know, which was a three-arrow policy to do with, you know, ultra-easy monetary policy, expansionary fiscal policy, and structural reforms. As you say, arguably, um, none of those have shown up in, in restoring the Japanese economy to health um, and certainly not bringing inflation up to 2%. But, um, you know, there will be obviously there's going to be a lot of jockeying for a position as far as his successor um, I'm not across all of the potential candidates but at, uh, reading at the weekend one potential one um, somebody called Shigera Ishiba um, who has run against Abe in the past um, and has been pretty critical of, of Arbonomics and particularly the impact of of zero rates on uh, on pensioners and savers in Japan mm. so were a candidate like that to become a front runner I think that would play to the view that um, the days of Arbonomics could be numbered but as far as the next you know months and quarters are concerned it's fighting the you know the impact of the pandemic and that inevitably means that uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy settings aren't going anywhere so it's going to be an interesting week to keep an eye on u.s politics as well isn't it because we've been saying last week it's it's no slam dunk for biden uh, the ft is calculating he has 203 safe seats he needs 270 uh, but we've got president trump giving a speech the other day saying it's a choice between prosperity and anarchy I mean, you know, love him or hate him, President Trump certainly makes a noise, doesn't he? He's heard, and uh, that's going to be very important in the build-up to this. Uh, the, the poll average, according to Real Clear Politics now, is 94.7 for Biden, so he's down a bit, 42.8 to Trump. So, you know, that gap could narrow. It could go either way, couldn't it? We'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. That's it. No, I think so. And I think one of the, the increase, and obviously with the party conventions out of the way, I think the polls will take on more meaning. Um, I think one of the things in particular that, uh, that we're all going to be locked on to is the polling in the swing states, those sort of, you know, six or ten states that will likely determine uh, who's victorious. And, you know, there is an argument that um, Hillary Clinton was actually polling better than Joe Biden was in some of those uh, those swing states at this stage of the election campaign in 2016. So I think
think that gives reason to be nervous about um, you know whether or not Biden's current poll leads that on most um, analytics suggest that he will get he will be comfortably over the line to get those um, what is it 277 college votes but um, you know as I say things have happened historically that suggest that we can't rely on the, in those polls so so I do think there's going to be um, you know more interest and, and potentially more sensitivity particularly in the equity markets now as, as we get closer to November the 3rd yep, I'm sure there will uh, so new rules supposedly from the Chinese government artificial intelligence technologies of which uh, TikTok is one apparently may need government approval before it can be sold over overseas so uh, to uh, supposedly to safeguard national economic security so maybe Microsoft or Oracle or the other companies wanting to buy it won't be able to uh, which could mean uh, the, you know the ban imposed on its use in the United States watch that story unfold this week meanwhile uh, Apple stocks they split today that shouldn't make any difference to the Apple share price to do except for look what happened to Tesla uh, and we get uh, China's PMI data today as well and Richard Clowder from the Fed is talking later on uh, a quiet start apart from that today. But actually, Richard Clowder should be interesting, shouldn't it? Because he's sort of been, like, been almost like being the main architect, hasn't he, towards this new policy at the Fed? No, absolutely. So I think there will be, obviously, we've been, you know, um, Jay Powell's already let the cat out of the bag, if you like. But uh, as you say, Clowder was the uh, was the person charged with this whole review of the monetary fo- policy framework. So I think from a, an operational point of view, man, does it mean, you know, changes to the way that the sort of the QE bond buying program might operate, for example, I think are going to be, is going to be of interest. And uh, as you say, those PMIs um, kick off the week data wise, but not expected to be much changed from, from last time. We'll need to be some, see some surprises there to have much of a, an early week reaction, I'd All suggest. Right. Very good. Okay. Lots ahead in the week though. So we'll uh, stay with us on the morning call. Great to talk, Greg. Catch you again very soon. Well, thanks, Phil. And that is it. That's Monday morning on the morning call. Back again tomorrow morning. I'm Phil Dobby for NABS. See you then.